Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Professor Alan Parker. All right, we are going to be talking about addictions particularly. And so my name is Alan Parker. I'm a professor at Southern. And uh, so I'm going, to be, I'm going to be talking about the realities of addictions, try and figure out based on some of the things that we've shared, uh, how do we handle addictions ourselves? Uh, because just about everybody I know is addicted and the others are lying. <laughs> and so addiction is really a, a problem we all face. But before we get into our discussion of addictions, won't you bow your heads with me for a word of prayer? Father God, we want to thank you that you have called us not just to be Christians, but to be healed. So many of us have discovered the pain of not finding healing. Lord, we have scrambled between wanting to know you for who you really are and yet feeling frustrated by our sinful humanness. Help us not to come up with just a typical human answer, but to experience the reality of your grace. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I think most of us would understand the concept of secret shame. You know what I'm talking about? There are things we never talk about when we become Christians, especially Seventh-day Adventist Christians. We like to put on a mask. Has any of you ever worn a mask to church? You know, you walk into church and there comes the holiness mask as you walk in. How are you, brother? I'm fine. You, I'm fine. You know, my grandmother died this week, but I'm fine, you know. And we put on these masks because we don't want other people to see what's really inside. And, and the mask represents our happy, holy face. In fact, uh, the story was told uh, by somebody who worked in the White House. He told me that Bill Clinton one day decided to play a prank on people who were coming to the White House. And as they were walking in, and everyone was shaking his hand, of course, they're so nervous. How are you, Mr. President? And then they'd say their little speech, and then they'd go. That he would sometimes say things like, I'm having a terrible day. How about you? And they wouldn't even know it because they're so scripted to being happy and, and being in front of you. Well, that's wonderful, Mr. President. And then they'd walk on. How do we deal with the reality of our lives if we can never face what's going on inside? And so we've learned to play the game, to say the right words, to say the right things. And that's why, honestly, when, we, when there's a seminar that says, you know, that we are going to deal with shame, most of us are too ashamed to come. Uh, but uh, there is, there's enough of a crowd here that we feel better. We can all be shameful together. Shame happens in our lives and it has become secret. We don't admit it to other people, but secretly in our lives there is a secret shame. And we need to figure out what to do with that secret shame. I've, I've been reading a book called Inside Out by Larry Crabb. And in that book he covers a student who just one time in a few minutes was exposed to pornography. He happened to be uh, flipping through channels and there was uh, something that had pornography on it, 
And he got so fascinated by it that it became an addiction. Just a momentary glimpse, and suddenly it took over his life. And here he was, a godly, upright young person. He was determined to follow God, and yet he had this secret shame, the secret sin that was holding him back from who God wanted him to be. And he was struggling, saying, how did this take over my life? And in the book, it suggests that the real problem is not just a behavior, it goes deeper than that. And so we need to deal with more than behavior today. We need to take a look at what is really driving us to these secret sins. So to understand addictions, we first of all need to answer the question, what is an addiction? What is an addiction? An addiction, anyone want to tell me what an addiction is and then I'll repeat it? What is an addiction? Something that you keep craving? Well, you know, I, I keep craving food every day, you know, at least twice a day. I crave for food. Does that make it an addiction? It might be. It depends. Yes. It's compulsive behavior, even when it's not good for you. I, I like that definition. Enslavement to a habit, substance, personal thing, and the inability to break free, even when you realize that it is harming you. Any of you ever had an addiction? I have. Sometimes still have. You know what I'm talking about? There are things that we get addicted to. Now, sometimes it's simple. You know, it, it may be that you get addicted to chocolate. Ladies? No, I'm not saying only ladies get addicted to chocolate, but I have known ladies to walk on the one campus I used to live at in South Africa. That's where my accent is from. That's why I'm African-American. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> so I, I've known some ladies who walked three miles to get chocolate. Amen. <laughs> Doug Batchelor often says that the original tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you think it was an apple hanging there? He says, no, it was a chocolate tree. That's why it was so attractive. So what we have are simple things sometimes, but they so control our lives that they become an addiction. And you can have an addiction not only to a habit, but it can be a substance, it can be food, it can be, uh, it can be something... Uh, that you ingest or intake. It can be cigarettes or alcohol. It can be a person. Any of you ever known somebody in an addictive relationship? It's harming them, but they can't stop. Uh, it can be a thing. It can be something like uh, pornography on the internet. It's something that you are addicted to that you can't stop, even when you realize this is not good for me. You know, like the little saying, once you pop, you can't. Stop, right? And so what happens is we start down a path and then we're like, well, I've already started this, so I may as well enjoy myself. Any of you ever been in that kind of situation? And so we get into addictive cycles. And in order to understand that cycle, here's a common one, is we can understand where addiction comes from if we understand the aspect of shame. So let's, for instance, take a drug, nicotine, or alcohol abuse. This is out of a textbook. You have gratification, it makes you feel better, but when you take the drug, the alcohol, or the nicotine, it leads to shame, and that simply adds to your unaddressed long-term pain. That long-term pain then only confirms that you have an unfulfilling personal life. That leads you to be more stressed and anxious, and the more stressed and anxious you become, the more you go back to the thing that gives you 
gratification that makes you feel better. But the more you do the thing that makes you feel better, the drug, the alcohol, the nicotine, for instance, the more you experience shame, the more you have a long-term unaddressed pain, and then you have an unfulfilling personal life. It just leads you to feel, I really am a failure. If I can't do well in this, then I really can't do well in anything. And that only leads to more stress and anxiety. And the more stress and anxiety you feel, the more you want to escape. And so you escape to that thing. Any of you ever been through this process? Escape, shame, pain, I'm no good, sense of failure, stress, escape particularly right before exams, because I'm on a campus, I notice that addictive behaviors get a whole lot worse. It's suddenly like they move in. Hey, it's exam week. Let's move into Southern's campus. <laughs> and they all move in because they know it, it's almost like you are geared up for it because you are not dealing with something. Now, this is going to be critical for how to understand addictions because addictions are not a behavioral issue. Everybody clear on that? They are not a behavioral issue. You don't fix addictions just by fixing your behavior. Something else is going on here, and it has to do with your shame and your long-term pain. So here are some traditional ways to deal with addictions, and maybe uh, you've had someone share this with you. You're just not serious enough. You have to work harder at it. So let's change behavior. So the problem, the reason why you are having this problem is you haven't done these behaviors. So we do these behaviors. Do they work? No, you try the behaviors, doesn't work. Then you know what your problem is? You're not doing enough of spiritual activities. If you only prayed more, if you only spent more time in Bible study, this wouldn't happen. So the person goes back, they take out their Bibles, they study their Bibles like crazy, and right after they close their Bibles, the addictive behavior comes back. What's going on here? See, it's not simply a matter of doing changing behaviors. What we have instead when we try these behavioral activities is we have increasing guilt and frustration. And the more guilt you have, the more likely you are to escape through the very addictive behavior that you're trying to overcome. Is, is everyone following me? So this is a continuous cycle, and behavioralism does little to fix it, and the Bible never suggests if you just change these behaviors, you'll make everything right. The Bible has a much more fundamental way of dealing with the problem of addiction. Then there's the other side. Oh, don't worry about it. We're going to be sinning until Jesus comes. You know, so don't, have it. don't feel guilty. We all do it. You know, everybody's in the same boat. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. Praise the Lord. But this tends to only lead to avoidance and a numbing of the pain that actually leaves you empty. So you see these people in Hollywood, are they all stressed out over their bad addictive behaviors? No, they're having a good time. How are you doing? You know, and they're all you know, sliding together on the road down to hell. But they're all having a fun time as they do it. But inside they are empty. Have you ever felt that sense of emptiness that comes when you ignore the hidden pain? And then one night, you're at home alone. There's no people. There's no friends. The computer died with a virus. Praise the <laughs> Lord. And suddenly, you're alone. And you realize, I'm empty inside. And that emptiness is what has been driving those addictions all along. See, the real problem is we don't understand our hidden thirsts. 
There are thirsts inside of us that drive us to certain activities and behaviors. If we can understand our thirst, we can understand why we keep filling it up with these addictive behaviors. Those behaviors are feeding our thirst in inadequate ways, but they feed our thirst. And because we don't understand what drives us to that addiction, we tend to just try and chop off the fruit, change the behavior without changing the root. And yet it's the root that is at the heart of this, and the root is feeding the behaviors. Any of you ever gone into a store shopping when you're hungry? Yeah, bad idea. Why? That looks good. That looks good. That looks good. I'll take that. I'll take it. Wow, how did I end up with all this food? Because you were hungry, everything looked good. You understand the principle here? When you have a deep thirst inside of you, you will be continuously absorbing behaviors to feed that thirst. The real problem is not the products, it's the thirst. And if you could really fill up your thirst, then it would change how you shop for the products. So you know what you have to do? You eat before you go out shopping. Of course, then you don't feel like buying any food. It's like, nah, I'm going to skip that, skip that. But it helps you to know what you really need instead of just simply what you desire. And that's what makes the difference with addictions. So how do we get down to the root instead of the fruit? Most of us are being driven by our search for happiness, for popularity. What do other people think about me? Come on, when we go to church on Sabbath morning, how much of it is about what God thinks of us and how much is it about what is everybody else going to say about me? And so we go into church, we are driven, even at church, by our addictive, compulsive desires to be popular. And it's often like reaching for something that will send us over the edge. So to understand this, I want to introduce to you a, a concept uh, from the book Inside Out, and he deals with three levels of significance. The most important one is right in the middle. That is your spiritual purpose, and we're going to call that a crucial longing. Uh, they asked a question in uh, USA Today. They said, if you could ask one question of God or a higher power, what would it be? Does anybody know what the answer would be? Yeah, what is my purpose in life? God, what is my purpose in life? The central driving question, thank you, a little bit of air in here feels wonderful. The driving question that most of us face is what is my purpose in life? Now we're going to discover a second aspect. There's a relational side. Now the first one is crucial. You can't live without a purpose. The second one is still critical. It's not crucial, but it is critical. And that is your relational need. No man is an island. It is not good for a person to be alone. Would you all agree? We need relationships. We need to belong to other people, to connect to other people. And so this is really the second level of significance. And then there's a third level that makes us feel significant, and this is your physical need, and these are more casual. Uh, these are desire for food, desire for status, desire more casual longings, you know, for your physical being. But what happens is most people live this the other way around. Where do they put the emphasis? On the physical. If I can have good food, if I can appease my sexual desires, if I can uh, you know, feel good, look good in, in my own eyes, be healthy, then I'm pretty happy. If I'm healthy and I can have some of my desires met and have chocolate, three-layered cake, I am going to be happy in my life and I feel pretty good. 
And if, as long as we feel good here, we don't worry as much about this level, and we certainly tend to ignore the inner level. And so we live our lives on that outer level, the outer layer of significance with phys physical desires being met. So where do most addictions take place? On the physical level. But then some of us are more relational. And so even though we get the physical side met, we have that relational need and we want to have a, a relationship. And so people are telling me all the time, I need a boyfriend or girlfriend. I said, no, you don't need a boyfriend or girlfriend. You want a boyfriend or girlfriend. And right now, that's not a good idea because you are too thirsty. Have you ever dated a thirsty person? Please don't leave me. Where are we going now? Where are we going? Can you just give me space? Have you ever been a thirsty person? You know what? You're my world. I worship you. You are my everything. I don't know what I did before you existed. You were alive. <laughs> but somehow you are so caught up in that addictive relationship. We have a term for it, a psychological term. We call it codependency where you become dependent on the other person. You're both addicted to each other and to other things to satisfy your inner thirst. Um, one book called Love is a Choice kind of paints it this way. It says, you have two love cups that are your parents. Mom's love cup, dad's love cup. They marry each other, and then you get born, and they pour in, they pour into your love cup down here below. So they're pouring into your love cup, and you're taking in their love. Now, what happens if mom and dad don't have a whole lot of love? They're not pouring in a whole lot of love cup to your love cup. What does that leave you? Empty, thirsty. And so you have this thirsty love cup, and then you find someone else with an empty love cup. And the two love cups meet each other, and there is temporary exuberation as they discover that the other person is really attracted to them because they are both like magnets coming towards each other. Two empty love cups. And there's a feeling that suddenly my love cup is full because they think that this other person is going to meet their need. And so there is a temporary elevation of love levels. But it's just like, you know, soda pop. It's not the real thing. It just comes up. And then they come together. But after a while, because they're still both thirsty, it wasn't the real thing, their love cups quickly drain, and they start demanding of the other person, fill my love cup. But the other person can't fill their love cup because they're running on empty. And so they get all frustrated with each other. And then they pull apart. I hate you. I'll never live with you. I need you. I hate you. They pull apart. I need you. They come back together. Any of you? No, I'm not going to ask that question. We have this desperate desire inside of our lives for someone else because we are thirsty. Everybody clear on that point? So in order to understand addictions, we need to deal with the problem of thirst. And God has a way of helping us deal with that. And you may not like his method, but I'm going to tell you what it is. What God does is he, he takes away the things that are masking our real thirst. So we lose the physical. You know, suddenly we have bad health. You get sick. Have you noticed how you're willing to follow the book Councils on Diets and Foods when you're sick? <laughs> because suddenly you realize, hey, man, I better get my, my life right. I don't want to be sick anymore. Sickness motivates you to go deeper. So we lose the physical. Sometimes we may lose the relational. 
You've been dating this person. It masks your hidden thirst. And then God says, you know what? I've been working with them, and they're going to break up with you. And you say, no, God, I need them. But they're getting healthy, and the only way for you to get healthy is to break up. And so you have this breakup, and you separate, and there's a loss of relationships. And you know what that leaves? That inner spiritual desire, that inner desire that can only be met by God. And it is an inner thirst. Because in many ways, what's happening inside of us is that we are thirsty. Now, you may say, what does this have to do with addictions? Everything has everything to do with addictions. Because what's happening inside of you, we're going to get to the water bottle in a moment, is that you are thirsty for something that the world cannot meet. Now, you remember the story of the woman at the well. Why was she at the well? To get some water, right? And uh, what time of day was she at the well? About noon? Do you ever go fetch water at noon? No, why not? Because this is not like going to the faucet and turning it on. You have to walk outside of town in the hot heat of the day. You have to lower down and get the water and then you're going to put it on your shoulders and you're going to walk back this long distance back to the village. Why would anyone do that in the middle of the day? Why? She is ashamed. She is ashamed of what the people will think of her because she has had five husbands and the one she's living with now is just on a temporary basis. He's an evangelistic prospect. And so what happens is she's there and she believes she's looking for water. And Jesus has this whole dialogue about water with her. We don't have time to go into it today. But this whole dialogue about water. And as they're dealing with the concept of water, he tells her, look, I told you I needed a drink and I just need physical water. But really what you need is the water of eternal life. You need everlasting water. She's like, where can I go and get this? You know, I need some of that water because I don't like making the walk out of town here every day. She doesn't get it, right? How does she react? She thinks he's talking about the external things. Now, let me tell you, when I talk about addictions and I start talking about inner thirst, some people just turn off like, I don't really have that inner thirst. I'm feeling pretty good. It's because you don't realize the deepness of your thirst. The deepness of your thirst is so deep that we've learned to mask it by saying, you know what I really feel like right now? I feel like chocolate. No, no, it's not about chocolate. Inside of you is something much deeper that's thirsting. And that's what the woman didn't realize. She thought she was just physically thirsty, but she had a thirst for something deep down inside of her. And when he touched that, when he got through to her, she realized what I've been looking for is a savior to serve. I've been looking for somebody who will fill up my life. The great mass of mankind are engrossed in the things of what? this life, and divine truth can find no abiding place in their hearts. And yet all the blessings which the world can give fail to satisfy the what? The wants of the soul. There's an inner thirst. There is a nameless longing for something which they have not, a peace and rest that is not born of earth. Ellen White Review and Herald, February 28, 1882. So what Ellen White is saying here is that we all have a nameless longing. Now what's a nameless longing? Any of you ever had a nameless longing? Uh, I'm going to give an illustration that was given to me that works really well. Imagine that you've been out mowing on a hot day and you walk into a, you walk into your house and you remember that you have an ice cold 
jar of lemonade in your refrigerator. You're headed towards the refrigerator and your mom calls. She has a habit of doing this just when you're on your way to do something important. So that you pick up the phone, you begin chatting to her. Hi, mom, how you doing? It's great. And then after you finish chatting to her, you put the phone down and now you can't remember why you came in there in the first place. And so you're looking around, you're looking around. What are you experiencing, eh? Nameless longing. And then at last you say, hey, what if I check the refrigerator? You open the refrigerator door and there you see it. The ice cold jar of lemonade. Already I can see that you're wanting this. <laughs> you take it out, you pour it in, shh, put it down, you hold it up to your mouth, gluck, gluck, gluck. <sighs> Have you satisfied your thirst? Yes, now. Most people, when you ask them, do you have a nameless longing? <laughs> They're not going to go, uh, yeah, but I, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> they have a sense of restlessness. Any of you had Saturday night restlessness? You know, you're just like, I want to do something, but I don't know what it is. And then people start, yeah, let's do this. Nah, that's not going to. Let's do this. Nah, that's not going to. And then somebody says, hey, let's study our Bibles. Are you kidding? We just had a whole 24 hours of that. <laughs> you know, and, and there's the sense that there's this restlessness that I can't satisfy, and it's really a desire of my soul that I'm trying to meet with something else. And so I have the desires of the spirit and the desires of the flesh, and what happens is they're rooted in the same desire of the soul. But the flesh says, here's how you can satisfy yourself. Here's how you can feel better about yourself. Here's what's going to make you feel happy. And the desires of the spirit come from that same basic desire, but they lead you to really satisfy your thirst in God. It's like a vacuum inside of your life. What does a vacuum do? It sucks. Why? Uh, it sucks dirt, yeah, but why, how does it suck in? There's a void of air, right? Very good. I've had other people give me fancy definitions about vacuums, but I'm not going to get into those because I'm not a scientist. But there is a vacuum inside. And again, this is an illustration that was shared with me uh, by Annie Morgan. And uh, I want to share it with you. Just imagine that you go up a mountain and you come back down and, what, and you have a water bottle. What happens to your water bottle? It looks a little beat up. Why? It has a... Vacuum. It has a vacuum inside because the pressure outside is now more than the pressure inside. And so you have a vacuum. Does this water bottle look really good? No. Does it look a little bent out of shape? Yeah, this is what our lives are like. Now, when you get down to the bottom of the hill and you open up the water bottle, guess what it does? It sucks in whatever is right around it. Now, here's what goes on in our lives. We have a thirst that is put in there by God. But because we don't know how to satisfy that thirst, we just open it up, and whatever is close by, we suck in. Some of us, it happened when we were really young. We may have been five. We may have been ten. We learned ways of satisfying our thirst that were not good for us. And now we find ourselves addicted because any time we feel that thirst... We look for that thing that made us happy originally. It's like it's built into our brains. Oh, yeah, I really remember how I used to feel when I had chocolate. <laughs> I feel better now. But what is a water bottle built for? For water. So until I have water in my life, until I have the real thing, I'm always going to have this ongoing thirst that does not satisfy. 
This is what uh, Ellen White goes on to say in Review and Herald. She says, Christ who alone can satisfy that sense of want in the human soul. His gracious invitation reaches down even to our time from the fountain of life that Christ still goes forth to a lost world. Come unto me and drink. In other words, Jesus is saying, you can't fill up your life by going to somewhere else. The only one who can satisfy that sense of want is Jesus. He's the only one who can fill up what's in the soul. C.S. Lewis in The Four Loves says we are born helpless. As soon as we are fully conscious, we discover what? Loneliness, our whole being by its very nature is one vast need, incomplete, preparatory, empty, yet cluttered, crying out for him who can untie the things that are now knotted together and tie up those things that are still dangling loose. You are a need. Now, none of us likes to think of ourselves that way. Hi, my name is Alan, and I'm needy. (laughs) But I'm needy for God. And the reason why I get needy for others is because my, my love cup is running on empty. So two ways I see, you know, kind of pulling this all together, two ways to understand our thirst. We have a thirst for significance, and we have a thirst for belonging. So if I'm dealing with addictions, here's how I like to think about it. So somebody comes to me and says, I'm addicted. I want to go down to the root. What caused them to become addicted in the first place? How did this addiction begin? And then I want to lead them from focusing on their addiction, because that's unfortunately what most psychology tends to do. Let's deal with addiction. Let's change behaviors. Let's change mindsets. I want to move away from that to understanding how I can help the gospel to meet their thirst. Because their real thirst is to be somebody who has purpose in life. And a person who has purpose in life doesn't tend to be as addicted. Have you noticed that? A person who has significance tends to deal with addictions. Somebody has a need for belonging. So a person comes to me, I'm going to see how can I, how can I help them uh, re-establish their purpose in life, find out how God meets their significance, their worth, because ultimately we have worth through creation and redemption. And God, when he meets our worth, when you feel worthwhile, you tend to be less addicted. Secondly, I find that people tend to have a need to connect with other people. Lonely people are more likely to get addicted. People who have a sense of belonging, who feel like they're part of a family, part of a friendship group, are less likely to be addicted. Now, the problem is most of us mask our addictions with superficial connections. So, uh, you know, I have 320 friends on Facebook kind of thing. Those are not friends. You know, I have like 2,500 or something. I don't know what it is. But I mean, they're not my friends. Sorry, there may be some of you here. What I mean is that that's not really where I experience connection. Look, he wrote on my wall. (gasps) Ah. No, what, what helps us to be connected is true vulnerability together with others in a community of faith. That's what really helps us be connected. That's where you come to GYC because you want to connect with other people who want to follow God. Can you say amen? Amen. And so when you get here, sometimes GYC with all of its thousands of people can be the loneliest place on the planet. Because you are here saying, maybe, maybe I'll meet up with a person who I can really connect with. But we're all busy going to programs and sitting listening to one guy or girl. 
And so we don't experience that connection. So I'm telling you, we need to find a way to connect because if we don't connect, people will not overcome their addictions. So here's what I've discovered. When people get into community and they experience true community, that is more powerful than any counseling I could ever give them. When you really get with people who love you and care about you. So we need to start being those kinds of people to others. Can you say amen? That's what will help us. So the reason, uh, there are two paths that we face here. When we face an addiction, I'm going to get into some real practical things as, as we finish out the seminar. The reason why I'm struggling, some people feel, is that I can't be happy. And if only I could have this, then I could escape my pain. Any of you ever experienced that? Oh, it's Saturday night, and if I just had a boyfriend, I would be so happy right now. <laughs> but that's not how you escape your pain. Uh, and so, but they feel that. If only I could have this, I'd escape my pain. The second path that's quite different from that first path is that my goal is not happiness, it is holiness. It is to reflect Christ in my life. So holiness does not mean the absence of pain. Was Jesus holy? Did he experience pain? He absolutely did. So pain was not something that he avoided. In fact, sometimes he seemed to have embraced it. Didn't Jesus say, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself, where's happiness there, take up his, and then follow me. The way to deal with addictions is to embrace your pain. I know I sound strange, but hang in there with me. Holiness, you see, is being filled by God's presence. Now, what do I mean by that? If you were to go, let's say it's the day after the burning bush. Moses is walking past that same bush the next day. Does he suddenly do a little dance and skip and go, oh, wait, got to take my shoes off. This is holy ground. Is it still holy ground? No, why not? Because it was God's presence that made it holy. So what is holiness? Holiness is being filled with God's presence. But you can't be filled with God's presence if you don't recognize your thirst for God. So the way to overcome addictions is to really deal with the pain of our thirst. And so you can say, you know what? My mother didn't love me. My father didn't love me. My brother didn't love me. My grandmother didn't love me. My great-grandfather didn't love me. You may have all of these things. And I'm saying, hallelujah, at least you know you're thirsty. I know, I know that's harsh because I've been through it. I came from a divorced family. My mother remarried a man who she didn't know at the time, but he was homosexual. And then he made a move on my brother, so my mother divorced him, married another guy. She had five kids who couldn't stand kids. And so I ended up at the age of six and a half going to boarding school. And so that's, I mean, my background is messed up. But I know my thirst. And if I'm not careful, that tremendous thirst inside of me is going to be met by the wrong things. Is everyone following this? And so until I understand my pain, and still I can, until I can embrace my pain and realize that God works in the midst of my pain to fill my thirst, I am not going to be able to serve Him fully. And the great news is this. Jesus said... Who loves more, the one who is forgiven much or the one who is forgiven little? Much. Why? Because they understand their thirst. And you may be feeling like, you don't know how deep my pain is. And I say, God does, and His grace is sufficient. For where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. You may be so thirsty that God's grace will be much more applied. 
until you recognize your thirst, you are going to continue to be addicted. That's the only way. So instead, what we tend to have is the self-directed life. We try and control our life, avoid pain, pursue pleasure. We try and control our lives. If I'll just control it, I'll prevent pain. No pain. Pain is out, pleasure is in. I'll have it nicely controlled, I'll pay the money, I'll have it all controlled. And instead, we find ourselves addicted and out of control. Any of you follow me with this? And so, here's what happens. Uh, this is from Inside Out. One uh, once things that seem clear at the moment, one thing that seems clear at the moment, sorry there, is that movement toward pain is suicide. But, Larry Crabb says, exactly the opposite is true. The fact that the path to life, the cross, often feels like the path to death, and that the path to death, that is pleasure, can feel like the path to life, is a tragic commentary on how far we've gotten off the track. Everyone following me? The process of becoming aware of our thirst is terrible. What a great way to end the seminar. But to explore and embrace our deepest hurts puts us in a small company of thirsty people who, because they feel their thirst, know what it means to come to Christ in deep and quiet trust. The way to faith is helplessness. The way to faith is helplessness. Because it is only when you're truly helpless do you recognize, I can fix this by myself. For those of you who've struggled again and again and faced the same thing, I'm not going to prescribe just read your Bible and pray every day, even though those things are very needful. Instead, I'm going to suggest you can't do it. But God can. God's grace is sufficient for me. God's grace is the only thing that ever matters. You are a child of the king, and because you are a child of the king, the more despicable you are, the greater his grace. The more challenging your circumstances, the more incredible his power. The more you struggle with temptation, the more power he promises. For he has said, with every temptation, there is a way of escape. Who put that way of escape there? God did. It is an act of grace. The person who manages to deny his pain behind a facade of togetherness is dangerously vulnerable, listen to this, to developing compulsively sinful habits because he is not dealing a death blow to the wrong strategies that, enjoy, that block his enjoyment of the Lord. He is not willing to deal with self. The unrecognized and largely unfelt ache in his soul still demands relief. He's ripe for being hooked when he stumbles onto something that provides a flash of excitement. And having done a lot of evangelism, I've seen people stop addictive behaviors only to become addicted to something else. Why? Because the real issue was what was going on in their hearts, and they never dealt with that inner ache. We converted the head, but not the heart. And so they were ripe for addiction. They therefore, and uh, so therefore, they provides a flash of excitement and a sense of fulfillment. The momentary relief of that core ache more closely resembles the experience of joyful living than anything he's known. It brings him closer than all his efforts to be obedient ever have. Are you listening to that? See, the, the obedient Christian, I am faithfully going to do what God wants me to do. I will step. All right, let's see what we have to do. 
go to church off to church i go hallelujah praise the lord all right i'm here at church here's what i'm supposed to do don't lift your hands too high that might be disobedient just sing nice and quiet nice and carefully i am going to be an obedient christian praise the lord and then it's time to go home and we go home and we faithfully get out our bible study and we get out our lesson study and we study our lesson and we do it faithfully and obediently and then that night when the sabbath hours are over we get into an addictive behavior and for just a moment we experience a certain sense of fulfillment that our dutiful existence never gave us and it becomes powerful. Now, if within a community of believers, we experience genuine belonging and real significance, if our heart need was so filled up from Christ, if His grace was poured out into our life, if, if church could become that kind of place, and if we focused in our Bible study saying, God, fill my thirst, I'm so thirsty. This is real, this is who I am. This is what I'm experiencing, I'm in pain. And he fills up our thirst. Isn't that what Psalms is like? Just those powerful experiences. And we walk away. Then the devil brings his cheap little imitation. This is going to make you feel better. You say, I've, I've had the real thing. It's not Coca-Cola. I've had the real thing. God has filled my thirst. Amen? That's what makes the difference in addictions. What we do is we move self off the throne and we put Christ on the throne. Because when self is on the throne, we have all these competing interests. Do this, do that, all of these wants that are struggling in our lives. And yet when we put Christ on the throne, self yields to Christ. Our interests are directed by Christ and we have harmony in our lives. He brings harmony in. And so the, the, the solution, the way to fight the battle of addiction is to surrender. Not to the addiction. I mean, the... You know, one of the poets, I forget who it was, but he obviously wasn't spiritual. He said, the best way to get rid of an addiction is to give in to it. That's not a very spiritual approach. What do we mean by the best way to deal with it is surrender? What is the best way? What does that mean? What are you surrendering to? You're surrendering yourself. And uh, you can read this all through Steps to Christ that the way to deal with addictions is to say, God, I give up on myself. Fill me with who you are. Enable my true desires to be met in you. As a deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. Say, God, turn my desire to be for you. Instead of for these cheap imitations, I want you to fill up my life because you are my all in all. I want you to so fill me that I can only sense my significance and my belonging in you. And then we join with a group of believers. We pray together. We, we hold each other together. I'm going to skip through uh, a couple of these here because I want to just deal with uh, some last things here. How do we deal with it? I want to give you some ABCs. And uh, I'm going to just run through these because these are critical. The first thing you need to do, and we know this from every addiction I've ever dealt with, the first place to begin is an admission that you are helpless, an admission that you are thirsty. You can go to uh, AA meetings, you can go to any kind of meetings. What's the first thing that happens? Admit that you are helpless. The Biblically, it says, confess your sins. So that's a confession. It begins that way. I'm reminded of a, a story that took place in California where one lady who had been in the church, I'm just going to give her a name, Janet, for uh, sake of her identity, 
And uh, Janet had been going to church for years, beautiful lady, uh, but she had a secret problem with alcohol. And so she was at church uh, one day and she said to the pastor, I, I've got a real problem. She started going to AA meetings. They started praying together and uh, praise the Lord. She ended up in the baptismal font to get rebaptized. And so she stood up in front of the congregation and said, most of you don't know this. You've seen me as the pretty face that wanders through the hallways. But my name is Janet, and I'm an alcoholic. Gasp goes through the audience. And then a praise the Lord follows right afterwards as she shares her testimony. And then the pastor, he stands in the tank and he says, my name is Jim McMurray, and I'm, and the whole gasp goes through the audience, a cineholic. <laughs> and then he baptizes her. Most of us are some kind of aholics, right? We have been addicted to something. And when we can admit, God, I don't have it in myself, but you have it. That first step is critical because that opens us up to faith. Next, we have to believe in God's power to overcome. And so I start saying, God, I can't do anything, but I have faith that you can. Praise the Lord. Thirdly, a specific confession of sin. So we admitting that are helpless. We believe in God's power to overcome. We confess our sin. Specifically, we say, God, I'm helpless, and I confess these sins to you. Then thirdly, we have to make a decision right now to stop. And you can find this if you look in the Bible and in Ellen White, you find calls that say you need to do something right away. Before you leave GYC, you need to make a decision. And so there is a choice. It's not like you can do it without choice, but the choice is a decision to surrender. God, I am surrendering this to you. Now, when you say, I'm going to stop right now, there are ways to say that. The way to say that is not, I will never do this again. Any of you made those promises? I'm never going to do that again until tomorrow. <laughs> but when you say, I'm not going to do this again, it's not the right way. Instead, we say, I choose to surrender this to God and to give up this behavior, to instead let God fill my inner thirst. Third area is engage in positive behavior. That means you've got, you can't just take something away without replacing it. You all know the parable about the demons that were, uh, the demon that was sent out of the person's life, and then he went and called his friends, and they came back and found that the house was empty. So they had a big party, and all of the friends moved in. There are several people who said, I'm going to throw away all of my, my worldly music and I'm going to get rid of it. But they never replace it with good music. So guess what happens? That thirst is still there. So start doing behaviors that lead you to let God fill up that thirst inside of you. Then fix your eyes upon Jesus. And I wish I had a broom here, but I couldn't find one. I love to do a little illustration where I put a broomstick on somebody's finger and then I have them balance it. Any of you ever done this as a kid? You balance a broom on your finger and you... Now, there's only one way you can do it. Does anybody know how? You've got to look up at the head of the broomstick because as soon as you look down, it'll fall over. So what I do is I tell them, all right, now do it while just looking at your hand. So they look down at their hand. They try and balance it. Inevitably, it falls out of balance. And I say, here's the illustration. When God is your focus, when Christ is your focus, when you're looking up, your life will be in balance. 
But as soon as you start looking at yourself, how well you're doing or how badly you're doing, your life will fall out of balance. The solution is not to spend more time thinking about ourselves, but more time thinking about God and about how He can meet our needs. Then, this point is just common sense, but it really makes sense. Get out of danger. Now, I don't know why we think that if we keep certain things in our house, that that will show just how strong we are and how we can overcome it. Now, it's really challenging with a computer. What do you do? You know, how many of you watch the film Fireproof? Okay, quite a number. You know, he takes the computer with a baseball bat, and who's watching him from across the way? Yeah, yeah, so he starts, you know, banging into that computer. Well, let me tell you, I'm not too far off from that. Because Jesus says, if your right hand causes you to sin, what should you do? Cut it off. Now, I'm not saying that you all need to walk around with one hand. But what the implication is, why would you let something keep you from heaven? There are some things you just need to cut out of your life and get rid of. So don't place yourself in temptation's way. Get out of danger. And this last point is find a way to hold yourself accountable. Because unless you've got an accountability partner, we've proved this through and through, that people who are struggling with addictions do so much better when they have someone else to hold them accountable for two reasons. Number one, it stops self from being on the throne because when self is on the throne, it says, I don't need to be accountable to anyone. Number two, it provides a sense of community. And since that's one of our inner thirsts, if we can have community with someone else, that will help to hold us accountable to what we should be. Now, I can tell you that you can do all of these steps and still be addicted. Any of you tried this? Okay, you don't have to raise your hand. But you can do all of these steps and still be addicted because it's not a short-term solution. You need to go and get... Anybody got some water here? Got a nice full water bottle? Okay, it's got some water. Well, it's a start, right? You need to throw out the bad stuff and go and get some real water because that's what you were created for. Let's pray. Father God, I want to thank you that you have called us to overcome. And some of us, we've struggled. And yet we believe that your grace is sufficient. You have said, through your word, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Help us not to slide down the slope that simply says, if I just change my behaviors or if I forget about it, I'll feel better about myself. Instead, Lord, help us to trust in your promise, to claim the promise of your word, that with every temptation you have provided a way of escape. As we deal with our inner heart's needs, as we open up our pain, may you fill us up with the water of life. And may we walk away from this seminar saying, Lord, I have found the Messiah, for he has shown me everything I ever did, and yet he still loves me. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. This message was made available by GYC. 
GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit gycweb.org. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio. Welcome to the Minute That Makes a Difference. I'm Margot Marshall. What difference would it make to your self-control if you read the Bible? In a study, participants were given sentences containing five words to unscramble. Some contained religious themes, others didn't. Then they were asked to complete tasks that required self-control, involving enduring discomfort, delaying gratification, exerting patience and refraining from impulsive responses. Those who unscrambled the sentences with religious themes had significantly more self-control in completing their tasks, which surprised the lead researcher, who previously thought that religion had little practical use. The very book that strengthens self-control, the Bible, claims to do so. Quote, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So keep a Bible handy. It makes a difference. G'day, my name is Dr Andrew Pennington and I'm the Practice Principal and an Integrative General Practitioner at Sanctuary Lifestyle Clinic in Waitara in Sydney. Today I want to talk to you about how to use exercise to treat and potentially reverse your type 2 diabetes. In particular, I'm going to talk about high intensity exercise. Now, Guidelines around most Western societies suggest that we should uh, be involved in doing 30 minutes of moderate intensity uh, physical activity every day, and I would certainly agree with that. But when it comes to type 2 diabetes, you can actually get some significant improvement, even greater than the 30 minutes a day, using high intensity exercise. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the way that I talk to my patients about how to do this. It's actually quite easy. You can do this in many ways. There are many exercise modalities that are amenable to high intensity exercise, whether you want to do it via swimming or via walking and running or jogging and running uh, or even boxing or cycling. There are a lot of ways you can do it. But the principle here is that when we do high intensity exercise, and this is exercise where we're exercising close to our limit, around a 90 to 100% capacity of effort, this actually has a significant effect on the muscle's ability to take up blood sugar and take it out of the bloodstream and put it into the muscles where it can be utilized for energy production. And when we do this high intensity exercise, it actually fools in some ways the muscle into thinking that it needs to do more effort than it is. And it upregulates the sensitivity of the hormone insulin, which pulls blood sugar from the bloodstream into the tissue. So Interestingly, studies have shown that we really don't need to do very much exercise at a high intensity level to get the benefit here. It's actually about six minutes every week. Do you think you've got six minutes? Six minutes is really not a lot of time. Now, I would say that six minutes just doing high intensity exercise might not be the best way to approach it. And that's why I like the concept of high intensity interval training. High intensity interval training 
is basically where you start off exercising in whatever capacity you want to do. I find possibly the easiest way to do this is on a stationary bike. So imagine if, you, if you've got access to a stationary bike, either at a gymnasium near you or at home, you can easily adapt this into your setting. And the way I explain to my patients is I want you to start getting onto that bike and going at about a 50% effort. So, and do that for about two minutes. And of course, you should warm up before you do this, a little bit of a stretch. And I should also mention, of course, check with your doctor to make sure that this is appropriate for you, your medical condition before you engage in high intensity uh, interval-based training. But assuming that you've got the medical clearance and check up from your doctor to do this, then start with the, about two minutes of 50% effort. So you're sort of strolling along there. It's not particularly difficult for you to do it but you're just starting to get your heart rate up again. And then at the two minute mark, I want you to really go whole hog out, really go hard um, and do that for 20 seconds. So you're strolling on and you're really going as fast as you possibly can or close to as fast as you possibly can. And at the end of 20 seconds, just slow it back again to about a 50% effort and continue to do that for about two minutes. And then again, go back into another 20 seconds of going really, really fast and then slow it back to two minutes. So if you, if you sort of add this up, if you did that block of about 12 to 14 minutes a day, which is very achievable, I think, you've actually got at least one and a half minutes of high intensity exercise. And all you need to do is do that four times a week. Pretty simple. I encourage you to give this a go and you'll be surprised at how much improvement you can get on your diabetes level. You may even surprise your doctor. Of course, as I mentioned, check with them that this isn't appropriate for your uh, particular situation. They don't have any injuries that preclude you from doing this or you don't have cardiovascular disease, which may need to be treated prior to doing this level of exercise. It's a great way I find of improving blood sugar control in someone who has type two diabetes and certainly part of the potential for reversing this condition. Uh, if you'd like to know more principles about how lifestyle strategies can actually treat or prevent chronic disease such as diabetes, sanctuaryclinic.com.au. You can also go to our Facebook page, just search for Sanctuary Lifestyle Clinic in Facebook. We'd love to hear from you. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.